morning, guys. I'm Craig. And I'm Carolina. And welcome back to Wildest Kruger Stories. We have a very interesting episode for you guys today, and we're coming f- to you from an even more impressive area of South Africa. I'm super excited for this episode. Yeah. I think um, we're going to be talking about a lot of very interesting stuff, and drum roll, we did say it in the last episode, but anyway, drum roll, we have our first guest on the podcast, so I'm very excited about that. Yeah, we'll introduce him in a little bit of a, a little bit of time um what we do want to talk about first up is why we're here uh we're actually sorry we should go where we are actually we're yes. um we're in the maritaba contractual park which is adjacent to marakele national park which is uh part of south african national parks and uh it's basically just an extension of the marakele ecosystem where we um, have been doing a predator identification project with the conservation team on the property. Just for those who don't know South Africa very well, where in South Africa are we right now? Because we're not in Kruger, which is where we're usually at. Yeah, we're we're in the Limpopo province, which is, we're about, if anyone looks at a map, we're about two and a half hours north of Johannesburg um, in yeah, a completely different national park to Kruger National Park. There's uh, there's no join whatsoever between the two ecosystems. Yeah, and we're here with our very good friend, Callum Perry. And we're very excited to have him on the podcast because, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself, Callum. Welcome, my friend. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, uh, it's been incredible having you both here the past week. And as Cara said, yeah, my name is Callum Perry. And as I'm sure you're aware by listening to me speak a couple sentences now, I'm actually from the UK. Um, The accent hasn't changed much yet. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I'm fortunate enough to find myself here in Maritaba Contractual National Park in, yeah, a little slice of heaven that I just absolutely love. And yeah, I'm here as the head of research and monitoring for the park. It's a role I've recently taken up after two years as a conservation guide on the property and i just love it you know awesome yeah. awesome yeah, yeah we've we've been following you around like obviously on instagram and obviously we, we got to know callum um a good couple of years ago uh when he was doing his field guide training course and and i bumped into him a couple of times we had a few parties together didn't we as well <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, just, that's how you really make couple, friends you know? in this industry you know you, you have a party you have a few beers and you actually realize hey this is actually quite a good guy um, Actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, the <laughs> accent puts people off at first. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we we became really good friends, and uh, Callum actually drafted myself and Carolina to come assist with the the lion identification. So just a, a bit a bit more about what we're doing here is they were struggling to to understand the dynamics and identification of their ver- uh, or the identification of various prides in the Maritaba conservation area and that's where where I came in to just get some photographic ID and um, just kind of try get them a bit of an understanding with their teams who have been amazing if I might add just watching you guys work and being part of your team for for the just the, the short time we've been here has been amazing I've met some pretty incredible people yeah honestly we've been here for the past week and it's been such an incredible experience. Like I'm mind blown about how beautiful this reserve is for first thing. And then how incredible 
work you guys do and the amazing team that is here and we've gotten we've had the privilege to join on some really cool things uh, of moving lions and so on which has been absolutely insane so yeah thank you for having us here absolutely and like you say it's it's an incredible property and an even better team and you've seen how it's worked the past week it's such an easy flow there's no stress everyone knows their role whether we're working with lions rhinos or even just doing a bit of maintenance everyone gets stuck in and gets the job done and there's a smile on the face at the end of the day and that's that's what that's what is amazing and what i've found been in the industry for so long is how smooth everything goes but what i do want our listeners to know is how did a little boy from england <laughs> get into head of research at Muratava conservation yeah so it's it's quite a story really I, i've always i've always loved nature i've always loved animals i've always had a passion for the bush which was stimulated really by the fact that both my parents worked in travel when i was young so we came on a safari holiday and as people say the africa bug bit us and <laughs> that was us sold and then when i turned 18 years old i decided to take a gap year and i had a place at university to study modern languages and linguistics by the time my year was up but i came out here to south africa volunteered um, with an organization and just yeah I, I realized conservation wasn't just a passion a pastime for me it was it's a career it could be my whole life and from that moment on I just made that decision, made a deal with my parents that I had to get my degree in the UK. So did my bachelor's and master's in conservation science in the UK. But through that, each year I was sent out to the Kruger to do research. And I think that first year I was there in a beautiful property, same place where we actually met. And every decision since that moment was how do I get here? And it's been long winding along the way, but no, I, I absolutely love it. And that involved working a few different jobs. I mean, I bounced around the Lowfeld for about a year and a half before I settled on something permanent out here. And I love it. I've worked as a guide for three years, which just opened my eyes up to the incredible beauty of the natural environment here and bushwalks, boat cruises, game drives, and just getting to spend all day, every day out in the bush learning and absorbing what's going on it's yeah it's a dream come true and now in this newer role of mine as head of research and monitoring here i just feel the sky's the limits and yeah and i, I love it no. i'll keep saying that i just love it <laughs> <laughs> well uh, mate i can see how you do i mean it's 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 an incredible part of the world i mean we joined you on a boat cruise the other day we we obviously like we haven't just been on a holiday we've those of you who do follow myself and Caroline on Instagram, you'd notice we have been doing some pretty hard work. But then in the afternoons, there's always time to, to suck down a few beers and and uh, enjoy the ecosystem that we are in. And I mean, the, the boat cruise you took us on the other day, I mean, we, we got so close to these two buffalo bulls that were just so chilled with us on the boat. And then we actually watched, we watched them swim across the river. And that, that was remarkable. You know, you don't see that too much uh, in the Kruger region. I mean, you go further further north into into Africa and you see that stuff but yeah yeah I think something that we've been talking a lot about this past week Callum because it's it's quite similar between the two of us is how you've you've worked at all these random different jobs wherever you could just to kind of make your way to where you are now because 
we've been spoken talking about it before on the podcast that you know there's no really straight line and straight road to working conservation and working the bush you kind of just have to make your own way and just work hard at different places and and you will eventually get opportunities and get to to where you where you want to be and that's that's what you've really done uh, working all these different jobs and eventually ending up here and it's it's really it's really cool to see but I do want to ask you, uh, because I think people are really interested, you were talking about the qualifications. You were studying in England, uh, but what did you do any studying here in South Africa as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a tough road to get there. And I have to say you are someone I have great admiration for, that you've stuck it out and the way you've got to where you are now. So <sighs> it's, it's, been, it. it's been a <laughs> privilege to follow your progress as well. But yeah, so I, I came out here, like I said, with my master's degree in conservation, but I knew it was the FAGASA, it was the guiding qualification was the first step for me. And I was very lucky, the property that I'd been doing research on, they had a FAGASA course on there, um, and you know them well, Campfire. Yeah. I, I, I can never talk highly enough about Campfire. I enjoyed my time there. And I, I did my training there as a level one field guide, and then an apprentice backup trails guide before eventually turning that into lead trails and taking out bushwalks. But yeah, it was just, it was something I knew I needed in the industry to get anywhere. So that was the first step. It was get that qualification, sort of put my, put my name on the roster kind of thing. Get, just get to that point and then the work will start to come and then things start to come. And of course, it was slow. Like like I said, I bounced around quite a lot. It was tough to settle because it's it's quite hard as a foreigner to get the permanent working visa. So I had to take little jobs. It was more freelance. It was a couple months here, a couple months there. And one point that actually started the turn for me was when myself and a couple friends, who you both know as well, Amy and Warren, we started our own non-profits organization the scales conservation fund an amazing initiative if i might add sorry to cut no, you no, off, thank you amazing I mean, much appreciated and they're, they're two fantastic conservationists that i've a lot of admiration for as well because i've worked with them both before closely on conservation projects and between the three of us we all saw this gap between passionate conservationists and actually getting the funding getting the awareness getting the money in and that was sort of our way to worm our way into the industry. And from there, I, I bounced around a few guiding jobs, you know, just to keep the money ticking over a bit before, yeah, I got an incredible opportunity to come to Maritaba. But yeah, that was halfway through COVID. So there was a lot of, a lot of stress, a lot of luck involved. There was one occasion where I was homeless, sleeping on Amy's couch for three nights. <laughs> waiting to see if I need to move back to the UK or if this new job that I'd interviewed for was going to take me up. And then Maritaba offered me a three-month probation as a guide, and that was two and a half years ago. I haven't, haven't looked back since, and now the role has just developed. It's evolving, and I can, yeah, I can do what I want to do and what I love to do and make an impact. Absolutely. I think like what you've done and what you've accomplished is something so special. We chatted the other night while we were having sundowners and, um, you know, you, you are someone I'm so proud of, like one of my friends, you know, just like really, really proud of you. You had this, you had this ambition and this mindset and there was, there was no stop button. It was like, I'm going to accomplish my goal 
and I'm gonna get there. And yeah, man, I I, st- I, I mean that. It's it's on record right now. <laughs> <laughs> that you you are someone that I am incredibly proud of from a friend's point of view. Thank you. That means uh, a lot. And from a conservation point of view, that we're gonna touch on now with a couple of a couple of interesting stories. Um, you have done so much, and I've watched you for the last week, and it's just been absolutely incredible. What I do want to talk to to you a little bit about is how uh, we've chatted about it quite extensively over the week is the 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 unity between or the soon-to-be unified front of uh, that we're pushing for between guiding teams and conservation teams because over the, for those of you who don't know in South Africa it's been quite a quite a split system and it all comes hand in hand you know the, the conservation side with the, along with the ecotourism side they really do play two pinnacle roles in the conservation field and they've been quite split for for reasons i won't i won't really go into we don't have enough time (laughs) but um what what i've really been impressed with with uh, yourself is how you've come in and wanted to unify that front and tell us a little bit about or tell the tell the listeners a little bit about how we you we've gone about the the predator identification over the last weeks to unify that front yeah for sure and it's it's something i feel i'm in a quite a unique position to understand quite well because I, by trade, am a conservationist that worked as a guide. I, mm. I was trained as a guide, but I'm a conservationist as my background. And then I started working in guiding and I started to see the divide quite clearly there. There's, and it's like you say, it's, it's a long story trying yeah. to explain why, but it's never made sense to me because any guide anyone who comes and spends time out in the bush wants to be in nature for me that is a conservationist it's someone that wants to preserve these areas wants to make a difference exactly make a difference and i've i've always i've always hated that divide i just feel it's such an unnecessary divide between guides and conservationists who are actually on the same property working for the same cause so within this new structure within this new role i have I'm really trying to unify it between all the lodges on the property, the conservation team. We've, we're quite fortunate in this region in Maritaba, most of us are quite young here. So there's none of the old mindset getting in the way. So this last week, like you say, we've had meetings with the guides from all four different lodges on the property, getting them involved in this project. So the project, a lion identification and dynamics monitoring program, which in an ecosystem like this has been really tough as, as you've seen Absolutely. since you've come here because it's so splintered and it's such thick bushveld here that we don't see a lot of what goes on whereas when you have guides on the ground every day morning and afternoon they're your they're your data assistants they're your field assistants collecting your data so integrating them into the process is not only beneficial for the data collection aspect but it just gets everyone much more invested in the project and you've seen how enthusiastic everyone has been for this new unified front as we call it so it's incredible so for those who who are listening and who don't who hasn't been to africa before maybe and don't aren't very familiar to, with all these terms could you explain in like this is going to be a tricky one in like one sentence what is conservation and why is it so important in the ecosystem and in, in nature? So essentially, conservation, I think the dictionary definition is to conserve and preserve an area. But it's 
in layman's terms, it's we're, we're looking after this environment to preserve it for future generations and just ensure that this land use is kept as a wild area. Human encroachment all over the world has, is ridiculous, Absolutely. actually. And even where we sit now in South Africa, in one of the last sort of larger wildlife regions of the globe, there's cities, there's towns, there's fences, there's all this encroachment over generations of human existence that has happened but it's now it's our duty to try and preserve that and in fact improve it longer term connect these different cons cons conservation areas and just make it as wild as possible keep these animals keep these ecosystems trees everything alive and when you say wild does that mean keeping it you know completely natural no humans get involved whatsoever like let nature run its course or do you need to get involved sometimes yeah you see in my opinion i think it's near impossible to just leave, leave nature to be nature obviously that's ideal like that is for conservation to be a success that is the end goal however realistically the amount of human destruction, involvement, whatever you want to call it, over however many generations, has meant that in order for these natural processes to occur, we need to help and facilitate them. So, for example, in a natural ecosystem with lions, because that's our topic of the week, lions, male lions come in from different areas, take over from the dominant males, that suddenly brings a new genetic bloodline, and it keeps things fresh, it keeps things going. However, the fenced ecosystems, this isn't quite possible on that sort of scale. So it's our duty to facilitate this role by moving certain individuals to spread their genetics elsewhere and replace with new genetics into this area just to try and help that process. Because we are leaving the animals to be wild. They're not our pets. We don't train them to come in to the cages. They get darted by very well-trained vets who i mean we've worked with two this week who have mm, both incredible. been absolutely amazing, amazing and yeah. you know it's such a privilege working with guys like that um but yeah I, I just think it's so important to understand that we can't just let nature be nature because there's been so much human interference and that's something i know a lot of people miss especially on social media because i'm sure you guys get it the same you get yeah. comments like why are you doing this this isn't right let nature be nature but you can only let nature be nature to a certain extent when there's fences. Yeah. And fences, are, I'm making it sound a bit negative, but fences have been the success of South African conservation. Absolutely. It's why we boast huge numbers of elephant, lion, and we've got one of the last strongholds for rhinos in the yeah. globe. So mm. fences are successful conservation measures, and that's actually to stop that human encroachment. But then other problems come because your wildlife areas get too, um, or the animals grow too large within those areas, and then the fences become a boundary, and then we need to manage and help out a bit. Very well explained. Yeah, yeah I, I think that really um, explains to a lot of people because, as you say, on social media and people who might not n have been exposed to these kind of things before, it's very easy to think. And I know myself, before I came to Afri South Africa and, and learned about these things, I thought the same, you know, shouldn't you just let nature be nature? But as you say, 
uh, humans have actually made it impossible for nature to be nature and that's why we need to get involved to help along the way but we still keep it as wild as, as absolutely possible i think touching on that yeah you guys hit the nail on the head there i mean with the with human encroachment as callum rightfully said it's becoming increasingly difficult i mean you see a lot of videos nowadays that are on social media for example you got herds of elephants going through farmlands or even cities you know you, you look at some of those videos in india for example and and that they, those herds of elephants go through like towns block roads and people throw rocks at them and set fire blankets and try to get them off the road and that that creates an incredibly stressful environment for the animal and um, that's where fences come in because we're we're humans are so overpopulated and um, we need like you said Callum we need those fences to, to kind of preserve what we have left <coughs> So, Callum, just a little bit about what what we've actually. I just want to tell our listeners a little bit about what we've actually been doing. We've touched a little bit on it, but uh, I want to touch on the importance of we go back to to guide and conservationist unity and solidifying that unified front um, with regards to the areas. And I was so 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 surprised and incredibly imp- uh, impressed with the guides in the area understanding the dynamics because. We had a hold on on the north of the pride dynamics in the north. It's very splintered, uh, the Kingfisher pride, as you guys are calling them. Um, but in the south and in the east, we didn't really have a hold. And I, I was very impressed with the guides actually understand, going down to all the lodge. The guides were very keen to, as soon as you made the call, like, come up. Yeah, we get, we're happy to talk to you and get a, get a, um, a, a kind of hold on the lions itself. Um, and it's it's due to the fact that that the lodges aren't concentrated in one area. Am I right? They're all spread out throughout the reserve. So just chatting to a couple of people, we got it pretty nailed, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I think that's testament to Scott and Mike and their yeah. teams on the park. It is phenomenal. There's there's information that as a conservation team, we're just not gonna get. Yeah. We, there's not enough time in the day for us to find out about all the different movements. So chatting to these guys, finding out things that, I mean, I've been on this property two and a half years that I didn't know about, movements that I didn't know about. And that's, it's that unity that is essential for conservation because if there's no unity between us and those guides, then this is just a huge gap in data. And as a scientist, a huge gap in data like that makes my work obsolete so uh, also i think if i'm going to play accountant for a while it's more cost effective to use the guides <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean with diesel prices as they are at the yeah. moment so yeah we need every resource that we can get to aid us with understanding the dynamics in this area and why i brought you guys in why it was so important to get a grip on this lion population because as we've proved, and as I believed before, we have an overpopulation of lions in this area, which is detrimental to some of the other work we're doing. So we have quite a quite an intense program for cheetah rewilding. We don't necessarily do the rewilding ourselves, but we form part of the larger EWT's cheetah metapopulation program. And we sit in quite a fortunate position here where we've got a growing breeding cheetah population. And the fact that they're growing and breeding in amongst a lion dominant environment like this is actually quite phenomenal because that's the issue with the cheetah. They went through their genetic bottleneck all those Mm. years ago 
And those that survived often survived in areas without lions. Mm. So if you have genetics that can survive among lions, then they can repopulate other areas, not just in South Africa, but in the whole of Africa. And that's, that's a strong, a huge part of what we're doing. And so to limit that, to let the lion numbers just grow exponentially without having control over it, and then they start killing our cheetah, then, yeah, we're not doing it's our counterproductive, job. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we, like, uh, to be honest, we actually had a very successful uh, translocation this morning. Am I right? We, yeah. we got involved um, and uh, we managed to successfully dot the two male lions um, that are going up to the Kruger region for exactly what you're speaking about, genetic spread. And we're getting two males out of here because uh, Muratawa has... Um, an overpopulation, as Callum said, and also too many males. Um, so cub succession is is not great at the moment. So that kind of just cuts off everything with regards to genetic spread because we do not, you don't have cubs. Yeah, and being part of that project was honestly an absolutely incredible experience uh, to to get so close to to these lions, these huge males makes you really realize how, how big they are because you know f for me i've never i've never been part of anything like this before and got to experience anything like it before and you see you see these cats from a vehicle and you don't realize how enormous they actually are like 200 plus kilos and you know getting to help out try to lift this male up on on a bucky and realizing how incredibly heavy and big they are that was quite a quite a humbling experience and and yeah happy to like to be able to be hands-on helping with conservation uh was was absolutely incredible it's been pretty amazing hasn't it absolutely oh, absolutely yeah i mean it's it's a huge privilege the work we do but i tell you those boys made us work yes <laughs> i was out on this park tracking them for about five days I went for all four corners of the park almost, tracking these boys, and they were just disappearing into blocks. I found them a couple times, but then they're so far from anywhere we can access that the vet can't even get in to do their work. So I was with these lions for hours, and then we still couldn't get them. And by, I think, about the third time I tracked them down, or actually, no, it was with you guys. We were on our way to a bloody meeting. Yes. Yeah. We were on our way to a meeting trying to Not even looking. avoid these lions. <laughs> But I, I did, I got a call from one of the anti-poaching guys that morning that he'd seen them pass his camp. So I thought, we'll take this road. Maybe. Maybe. Now we, were and talk, then, we were talking shit in the front. Yeah. And Carolina just went, guys, there's a lion. <laughs> <laughs> no, luckily, someone was concentrating. But And then you see how quick we were into action and the process all began. That's what we saw, how, amaz how quickly and amazing that teamwork uh, works with the conservation team. It was team. so effective. It, it was, was so incredible. efficient. You picked up the radio. Yeah, we sat we sat with him for about an hour, hour and a half, just making sure they wouldn't move off. But it was amazing how how quick and efficient your team was. And again, I go back to what I said in the in, in the beginning, as just how smooth the operations work. And it, it just it it helps um, for the animal's sake as well. You know, quick smooth transition is always is always more comfortable, less stress. <laughs> So Callum, you're obviously in this ecosystem day in, day out, mate. I mean, you we followed you for uh, followed you around. We've been your little ball and chain, you know, as you've had to like entertain <laughs> oh, us. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> um, for for a week now, and we've we've done and we've been part of some amazing projects, as we've mentioned. But you're out here day in, day out. 
tell us some some pretty amazing crazy just just downright awesome moments of of being out here on on Moritaba well I mean there's the there's the one story that will always come to mind first of all so I do a lot of work with rhinos so we tell us a little bit about the yeah, so, so we're, we're fortunate enough here that we have a key one conservation significant population of both the black and the white rhino, which means because we are at that level, we are able to source other parks and reserves in South Africa and further afield in Africa with rhinos. So we're, we're, we're a stronghold of rhinos. It's Amazing. Honestly, yeah. it's a true privilege. I have a rhino. I have three tattoos. Two of them are rhinos. I love these things. They were my big motivation to get into this work so doing the work we do collaring them with these artificial intelligence long-range collars that we fit around their ankles and we get regular updates of data from them but more importantly the the ai aspect learns from the rhinos what is abnormal behavior so we get a ping if there's any abnormal behavior we get different levels of alerts and i have to say the man that came up with this technology Espia LaRue genius absolutely fantastic and for me it's the it's the best step in rhino conservation we've had in a long time Amazing. and the privilege of fitting these rhinos with these collars is just unbelievable getting up close to these dinosaurs yeah. effectively yeah. dinosaurs with weapons on their face just amazing sorry uh, so just to explain what that ai does uh, with the abnormal behavior how does that help you protect the rhino so for example it learns what is normal rhino behavior such as wallowing mating all those sorts of things but then anything abnormal so for example okay this is the worst case scenario a rhino gets shot on maritaba a collared rhino gets shot that alert will tell us straight away, it will ping to our conservation manager a red alert that there's been a rhino, 99% chance it has been shot. And although that's still reactive, ideally with rhino protection and conservation, we want to be proactive and stop it before it happens. However, this is so quickly reactive that this rhino gets shot. We're not just there going, oh, there was a gunshot somewhere in the east, let's deploy teams. We know exactly where that animal was shot, so then we can deploy teams to the spot and to the nearest point of exit of the park. So it minimizes that time the poachers have to work drastically, and it's very successful. And we, we haven't had any poaching incidents in over two years, touch wood, that, that continues. We are expecting a bit more pressure in the coming months, coming years, which of course is, it, it's, it, it is to be expected with sadly what's happening with rhinos but it gives us that opportunity along with many other forms of anti-poaching it's our rangers on the ground all our guides are fitted with earth ranger technology where they can monitor and plug in rhino sightings so that we can have targeted patrols so for example if we know 20 rhinos have been seen in this area around full moon time anti-poaching patrols go there it's not just blind patrols and all of this combined with the Waterberg region's incredible camera system around all the parks and reserves here actually linked to Interpol so they pick up criminal number plates as they come into the area we can set up a roadblock and we can stop these guys even getting in it's all these factors everyone in this area is so on board with protecting these rhinos that I mean, I, I, I've never had much hope with the rhino crisis, but 
since working here, since being here, I feel that hope coming mm. back. And it is incredible to see, and it is exactly like you say, seeing this kind of technology and, as you say, the AI and how that can help us protect these animals, that, that is the future. And, and as you say, that gives me hope that there, there it might be a chance that we, we will win this fight eventually. Absolutely. 100%. Sorry, but now let's get back to your story <laughs> of you were doing rounder work and uh, you were telling us about rounder work and, and you were going to get into this story of, of something that happened. And then I asked the question. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, the, it's the way it goes. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been fortunate enough, not just on Maritaba, but lots of other reserves in this region. I've I've been involved in uh, hundreds of rhino collaring projects and it's really, it's becoming a bit of a forte of our conservation team working on these rhinos. It's sort of, it's part of our everyday thing almost that we're, we're so ready, we know what we're doing. However, sometimes, sometimes there's room for things going wrong and as, as always, in industry, exactly. <laughs> <with any job. laughs> And always when I get asked these questions, especially when I go back home to the UK, people are, oh, what's the craziest thing that's happened? There was this one day we were collaring two rhinos. It was a mother and her large heifer. A heifer is a young female calf, but she was about the four-year mark, so she was almost ready to leave the mother. And at four years old, it's a bloody big rhino. Um, <laughs> we were working with our normal vet, who is absolutely fantastic, but we also had another vet with us that day. We had a bunch of veterinary students as well. And what happened is we had the two rhinos darted and down together. They were about 10 meters apart. So I took the one group of students and was showing them the work we do. We collect DNA, the fitting of the collar, the notching of the ears. And I had the less experienced vet with me. And then the other vet was with the large cow. And normally what you do, once the operation's done, everyone gets back to their vehicles. And with white rhino, it's quite a relaxed thing. You sit in your vehicle, you watch the reversal drug go in. Two minutes later, they get up. They're a bit disorientated. They trot around and disappear off into the bush. However, on this occasion, <laughs> yeah, the inexperienced vet decided he was going to put the reversal drug in for our rhino without coordinating with the lead vet on the operation. And so when the lead vet was like, okay, ready to inject the reversal, this guy goes, oh, I've already done it. And I'm busy five meters away trying to shepherd people back to the vehicle when all of a sudden this rhino wakes up. And you know, this happened to me quite a few times. Rhino wakes up, I'm still on the ground. They sort of run at you a bit, but you stand there, you clap, you're like, hey, hey, hey. And you stop them, they sort of, they stop in their boots, they turn, they run the other way. You know, it's a white rhino. Generally, they don't want to run through their problems. So this happened this time. I'm trying to shepherd people back to the car. This rhino gets up. She starts running towards me. So I go all brave. I'm like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> if anything, she picked up speed. She comes running straight for me. My first thought was, I can hide behind this tree. Then I looked at it again and I was like, oh no, she's going to come right through that and flatten me. And there was probably, the whole thing was maybe five seconds from that moment, but I had to turn and run for my life. And I, I'm not a fast runner. It was almost, always my You're big thing. You're all legs, mate. I've seen you play football. <laughs> You're all legs everywhere. It was my big thing when I played sport. I was never the quick guy, but I tell you, I've never moved so fast in my life. Usain Bolt eat your heart out, I tell you. <laughs> but in that three seconds, I had this rhino 
five seconds I had this rhino chasing me and our rhinos have horns here so I was expecting that horn to get me and you've seen the video she was right on my ass I could feel her breath on me as I'm running away from this rhino oh, and not only did I change my mind with that original tree but then my next thought was I needed to jump over this bush and run away there but I thought in the time I was going to be in the air she would just come straight through that bush and flatten me and then my thought was I've got to run this side of the truck that was about 15 20 meters away from me so I had a bit of ground to cover before I got there but then there's a bunch of people standing there watching me so <laughs> I'm not going to run the rhino into all these Filming. people <laughs> yeah filming as well and I thought I can't run the rhino into all these people so naively bravely stupidly whatever term you want to use I thought I've got to take this on myself so I did a nice little sidestep trying to be a fullback in rugby yeah, you know, yeah, try, yeah, trying yeah. to bring back the glory the days little one too. but yeah did, did my little one too but she's still hot on my tail and I could like I say I could feel that breath on my bum and I was tensing at this point. I'm still running full pace, but I'm tensing. I'm just expecting this horn to come through me. I was like, it was five seconds, but it lasted a lifetime. I was thinking, I, I, I thought I was dead. I thought I was getting flattened by this rhino. But fortunately, at the last second, as I was about to dive under the truck, she turned away. I felt her steps turn away. And then just this huge mixture of relief and adrenaline <laughs> overcame oh, me and you know I was my heart was pounding and I just yeah I was flabbergasted <laughs> I, I almost got flattened by this rhino and what's even more amazing about this scenario it's the second time that week I was running for my life on a trail deep in the mountains three days before unfortunately stumbled across a black rhino and her calf and she decided she wanted to come for me as well so twice in a week i was running for my life two are you, the two different species yeah. <laughs> are you sure you're supposed to work with rhinos yeah, they don't seem to like you like... i mean that's two out of hundreds but it was yeah i mean then we had two more rhinos to collar that day so i was straight back into it on the ground crew, getting it all sorted is like you got to get back on the horse. Eh? Yeah, yeah, I was just about to say, like, isn't that the most important thing? Exactly like you say, you got to get back on the horse. You you got to get back into it because otherwise you you gonna build up a fear. Not that I think you would anyway, but but it's good that you just get back into it. Yeah, you, you have to in those situations. Look, that that rhino, she she didn't really know what she was doing. She just wanted to get out of the situation. She just chose me as her path to run through. <laughs> Fortunately, I got out unscathed. Everyone got out unscathed. The rhino's okay. I've seen her many times since, and I always look at her, and I'm, I just wonder if she remembers me. I wonder if she remembers how close she got to having a Callum skewer. <laughs> Would you say that's one of the, one of the scariest things, scariest moments in the bush? Yeah, I mean, I've had plenty. I mean, charged by lions countless times, elephants, buffalo, that, but... Sorry to cut you off, but that I have to say because I've never been, been charged by lions because I, I'm not a trails trails guard or anything. But after we were we got to experience the darting of the lions and, you know, they kind of get angry when they get darted and that growl and, you know, how they come at you. And I asked you guys, I'm like... When you when you're a trails guide and and you you like you get charged by a lion, which we make it sound like it happens all the time, which isn't yeah, the case, no, but not. but but it does happen. I'm like, is this what it's like? And you guys were like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, 
It oh, makes you feel alive, that noise, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, I think like when, that, when you know, if you're on like a normal trail and you, you're walking, you know, generally, or tracking an animal uh, like lions, and uh, if you're away from your vehicle or you're with your tracker, following up on tracks, and I, I almost feel like there's, often lions will growl first, you know, they, that, mm. even that is and scary. That, that, that's, that's the thing, but it's like, after that happens, it's like you know. A lot of people think like, "Oh my word, they're not they they're they're not happy." Yeah, that's true. But it's a warning sign. Yeah. They're basically just having a chat with you, saying, "Hey, listen, I'm here. Back up." Um, every now and then they'll get up and give you a little, "Hey, I'm here," and that's a little bit more intimidating. But that little growl's almost like it's just the, after that you get a sense of accomplishment because mm. you, know, I found the lions. Yeah, <laughs> we, go, we we can go look at the lions now. You know, there's that there's that sense of accomplishment, and that's always what I found is. Um, with, with regards to tracking, uh, you try you try your best to try make the approach um, as stressless for the animal as possible as as Callum yeah. uh, and his team does that as well. But yeah, so that was a very very cool cool story, and I'm sure the listeners enjoyed yeah. hearing about that rhino encounter. What about like other moments in the bush uh, that stay with you? We know that there is a special cheetah family that that you that you've spoken very highly, very highly about. Can you can you tell us about them? Yeah, so that's my OG female and her cubs. So they were the first cheetah cubs of my career. And before I get into the story, I just I have to say these cheetah, female cheetah in particular, are the most incredible animal. Being the weakest of the large predators, yet still she survives and raises these three cubs and they're a year and a half old now they're almost adults themselves i just have so much respect for these things and watching them grow from little honey badger looking things for those that don't know a young cheetah cub looks like a honey badger its fur pattern Mm -hmm. looks like a honey badger in order to help protect them it's a form of camouflage and i i just love this specific family so much i've spent a lot of time i mentioned about the metapopulation program and I spent a lot of time working with these cheetah, tracking them down and monitoring them almost daily basis. And we actually had the one cheetah family come across the mountains from the Marikeli side. It was the one female with four cubs. They came to our side on Marataba. So I was busy doing, oh, I was on my own out in the field one day, tracking and monitoring these guys and just trying to get them used to our presence because if we ever need to do veterinary work we need to access them quite easily and rather avoid the costs of hiring a chopper because conservation is quite expensive so and also stress on the animal exactly so we try and track them down on foot and cheetah they get comfortable without seeing us as food or a threat so uh, i've spent just, a lot just of so time my listener, just so the listeners know sorry callum to cut you off when these projects are done it's usually and they're and the, the conservation team is on foot. It's it's generally in very small groups, if not one person just on foot. So it's not like this crowd of people no, walking out not. after these animals. It's it's usually just one person along with a vet and a team waiting on standby to come and do the veterinary work. But sorry, Akali, go on, go on. Yeah, so I spent, I, was, I, I tracked down this other cheetah family, female with her four cubs, and I spent a good two hours with them I could see she was a bit uneasy and I I kept my distance. I'd sit when they sat, I'd move when they moved, 
but I could see she was a bit uneasy and I wasn't 100% sure why. So when she would look and scan around to, in an attempt to gain her trust, look, I don't know if this is actually how it works or if this is just me trying to anthropomorphize it a little bit, but in an attempt to gain her trust, I was also scanning, looking around, seeing if I could find what she was looking for. And then after two hours sitting with these things, uh, when I say sitting with them, I'm 25 meters away, all of a sudden they get up and bolt. And I, I, I thought I'd done something wrong, so I was a bit despondent. Uh, I'd been working on these cats for a while, trying to get them to the same stage as my OG family, but I thought I'd done something wrong, but I wasn't sure. And so I had about two Ks to walk back to my car. And as I'm going there, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to give up. I love cheetah. These cats amaze me. I'm not going to give up on these things. So I carried on. I found them again and I sat there. And then all of a sudden, the most, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps now, but the most <laughs> incredible thing, probably one of the most incredible sightings of my life happened. And it was just me on my own, in the bush, on foot just amazing this cacophony of noise just took over and it was squeals growls hisses it's i'd love to do an impression for you but i just can't <laughs> and suddenly the og female and her three cubs came bursting out of the bush and this was the first time these cheetah families had met each other so suddenly i'm sat there surrounded by nine cheetah nine bloody what cheetah you, what do you call that a pride yeah ah no one knows because that. you call the males a coalition but there's so much that we don't know about the sociability of cheetahs that mm. we're just starting to learn now and then they're all growling squealing hissing at each other and i'm sat there and honestly they completely forgot about me they they became completely unaware to my presence i actually had the one male almost walk over my foot he was so like I was irrelevant to them. I was part of the furniture. And I was there probably for two hours with the nine of them in total before, because I was still a guide at the time. I had to get back to the lodge, I guess, checking in. I had to go on a game drive that afternoon. But just being sat there, I mean, I was lying down at one point, lying down in the shade, nine cheetah all around me. It, it was magical. And since then, these two cheetah families have come across each other a few times. The one female does take her cubs back across the other side of the mountains more often but it, that was one of those moments where you, you don't you don't question what you're doing you're like I, I've been here for this reason like if everything led to this it was a success and it, it's a moment that will always stay with me just in amongst two families of cheetah and I, yeah I struggle to put into words how amazing it actually was and any sign, any 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 point of aggression from, uh, or was it more just intimidating behaviour? Was there intent to kill from either of the families of cheetah? No, so there was no aggression as such. It's like you say, it was more intimidation. It was the OG female. I saw a different side to her. She was being the aggressor, so to speak. Although she wasn't really being aggressive, it was more intimidating. And the reason the other female didn't just leave straight away with her cubs was that two of them were separated by OG and her three. Ah. So then she didn't want to run away and leave them while they were trapped. And it was just the noise was constant. If you've ever heard a cheetah noise, you know what I'm saying. It's yeah. that like high-pitched squeal and the growl. And if you haven't, please Google it or go on my Instagram, Callum J. Perry. 
I took videos of these moments and the noise just, it, it was, it blew me away just to be surrounded by it. It was noises that I didn't know they could make. And oh, no, that's yeah, incredible. It, uh, that's uh, absolutely incredible. I mean, you know, you can't, nine she said something you just can't comprehend, can you? You can't, you can't really grasp the concepts about it. And uh, yeah, that that's something so special and almost unheard of. Mm. Um, in the field i mean you should definitely write that in your journal oh 100 percent. yeah that's <laughs> i do want to say like with the story just just like a what do you call it like a don't no, do this at home don't no, do this at, this at home, home. don't try yeah, this at home yeah. this is obviously I was thinking about the same thing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is obviously like you are you're a highly qualified guide and, and well-trained and you also like as you say you were doing work there yeah, for for conservation doing this and and you know it was under very controlled circumstances and you're you're it professional in this yeah. field so this is not just you can't just go and walk up to, to no, a cheetah exactly in the that. wild that's not how it works it, it, what it, it's not yeah we go back to don't try this at home it wasn't for fun no it wasn't just someone going to sit with cheetah it was for habituation which we did a podcast on a couple of episodes back uh so i'm not going to go into that it was and research and monitoring exactly Exactly. it's part of something bigger because in the next few months those seven cubs they're going to be translocated relocated to reserves all over this country maybe even some further afield we have connections with african parks that we work with and to think that these cheetah can be a part of something greater for their species and to be part of a moment like that so what's so incredible about that moment is maybe the one male from og's three will link up with the other two males from the other female and maybe they can go as a coalition of that's, three which gives wow. them stronger chances that's going very forward. possible actually it's it's in 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 kruger on areas that i've worked i i have noticed that there's you'd see coalitions of male cheetah where one is you can see uh, just there's an age gap where you've got two younger ones that have linked up with an older one and uh, because like you said their chances are better of survival and they understand that Absolutely. and they 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 kind of they go going going through reserves where there's lions um and high uh, predator densities they have a better chance of survival and a better chance of getting through and that's why i think um cheetah actually do that and i'm sure you would agree oh yeah uh, and Look, there's so much we have left to learn about these animals and their sociability. And it's the next, or not the next one, but one of the next big projects of mine will be to understand why our cheetah are succeeding in this lion-dominant environment and to sort of give a blueprint going forward for how other reserves can get involved in this metapopulation program successfully. 100%. You know, like, uh, from what I... I've always understand understood from um, relocation of predators and uh, conservation projects all over Africa is they generally bring in the low-ranking predators first. You know, cheetah will always be the first one that is put on a reserve. They get they get orientated, and then you bring the larger predators in. But it must always be cheetah that have been exposed to lions in the past, which is difficult to come by, which you've mentioned. And by these cheetah being exposed to lions like this, it's going to give them a better chance of surviving in areas where Absolutely, there are lions yeah. already, which is be- it's, it gives a, the species a better chance of, of survival. And, and you and, know, it's and such an endangered species, so it's really, really important. That genetic pool is also just so important. We, 
we're realizing through research that so many wild cheetahs. So you, you've got different classifications of the cheetah. You know, you've got you've got the cheetah that um, are wild but are not used to lions. Then you've got a cheetah that have only been on reserves where they've been the only predator. Then you've got cheetah that have uh, been exposed to other predators but not lions. And then you've got the cheetah. It's a very small population of cheetah, especially in South Africa, that have actually been exposed to high lion numbers and um, that's those are the populations and the genetics that are so important for rewilding ecosystems throughout the continent of Africa so you guys might have noticed that we're not doing any scenarios today because we have we have a guest on air so a very important guest. very important very, guest very, and I very. <laughs> I hope you guys have enjoyed this conversation. Uh, but to, to wrap it up, I think people are probably very interested in, you know, how can, can you actually come, can you come and experience what you guys do here at Maritaba firsthand? Yeah, so for sure. So I, I worked at Maritaba Conservation Camps as a conservation guide for a couple of years. And now we only opened for the first time in September of 2020. So as a lodge environment, it's still very new to the touristic aspect. But as conservation guides, we're able to give guests that sort of behind the curtain peek into the work that goes on. And if you come just as a normal guest here, you may be able to get involved with some trail camera monitoring, tracking cheetah if we need to check up on cheetah because they often get little injuries that we need to monitor. But also as well for an extra um, donation fee, people can get involved with these rhino collarings. And for me, it's something that's really important because it's not just we're not just doing it to make money. It's it's work that we need to be done, but it's it's the funding that's important. So the guests that get involved with these rhino collarings, they fund this essential work. But more importantly, they actually it's it's that sensory it's the sensory aspect that you don't get with a lot of other safaris. As humans, we want to touch. It's a natural thing we want to touch, and most of the time, and rightly so, we shouldn't touch. However, when you get involved with these rhino collarings, it gives you an opportunity to monitor their breathing. You touch the skin of a rhino, you feel the horn of a rhino, and I just believe it gives guests that extra incentive and awareness, and then they're our next conservationists going and preaching about this work and how they helped save a rhino. And I, I feel that's so important, that aspect. And it's slightly different. The rhino's from, asleep. Just so yes, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a darted rhino is asleep while we're fitting the collars. But it just, it gives people that opportunity to get involved in conservation where normally it may not be as possible. Because normally you come to South Africa on a safari, you're in the vehicle, you're eating your food. But this is just a slightly different aspect to it. And it feels like it's also, it's a way for people to actually get to be a part of what they are donating their money to. You know, in, in other NGOs and stuff, as, as great as they are, not like, you know, saying that the NGOs are not great because you can't be part of it. But, you know, NGOs do a great job. But very often, unfortunately, as a donor, you, you, you don't see it happening because it's, you know, in a different country or whatever it is. And it's, you know, stuff that you can't be part of physically or whatever it is. But this, you get to be physically part of what you have donated your money to and you you get to see it happening and you get to be there and help 
hands-on with conservation. I think that's an incredible thing. Hundreds. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. It, it gives people that extra sense of purpose, which is actually really important for conservation because then these people go back, they tell their friends what they did, they tell their stories, and yeah, like I say, it's, it's essential. And Kelly, where can our listeners find you? Um, you, I, I noticed you do a little bit of advertising for your Instagram. A little, bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it in there. little plug there. <laughs> we'll, we'll link it in the bio. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Um, but then Maritaba Conservation Camps as well. The Instagram page is up and running. Our, our website is getting there. Like I said, we're still new. But get in touch, whether it's through me, through Craig, Caro, Maritaba Conservation Camps on Instagram. Get in touch, ask your questions. And if you can get here, I'd recommend it. We have a fantastic guiding team, the most incredible food, lovely camps. Beautiful and, lodge. Yeah, Amazing. beautiful. And the, the opportunity to see this yeah. beautiful area as well. And cruise along the Matlabas River for sundowners. See, Pretty that's, good way to end a day. Yeah, that's what, that's what I, we were talking about it, Craig. Like, what's quite incredible here, and I think something that you don't see a lot in the low felt where, where we mostly operate is, that, as you say, like a boat cruise. That's that's so special. You get to go on a boat cruise. And it's along. personalized. It's not one of these like massive barges where no, they're small... picking up little pe- people at different stops on mm. the Olifants River. There's one that goes down the Olifants River. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, this is personal. It's per guest booking. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's a small boat and you get to, to go on a different kind of game drive because you're going along the river instead of on a vehicle. And that's that's really special. And then obviously, like you mentioned, if there is conservation work going on, you can come and, and, and see it and uh, you can sometimes help monitoring cheetahs. And, and yeah, I mean, like you guys saw this morning when uh, translocating those lions, the guest vehicle that was out in the area at the moment, we called them in, get them involved. They can come and see what we're doing, learn from, and I can't stress this enough, our incredible team yeah. on the ground. And yeah, I just think that's it's the way forward with conservation, get everyone unified, involved and working towards the same cause. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us as our first guest. You'll always be the first guest on wow this Kruger stories how does that make you feel oh, it's, a, it's an absolute privilege well, we, well we I, have a million follow, million <laughs> listeners one day exactly that'll be my claim to fame but mate thank you so much for coming on and guys thank you so much for listening so just before we finish yeah I just want to thank everyone for listening of course but also thank you guys not just for having me on the pod it's been an absolute privilege of course but the work we've done over the last week it is quite incredible and not not just the movement of the animals but learning all this stuff and having people like yourselves here helping us out it's it's really yeah we're very grateful it's incredible and thank you thank you Kelly. thank Those you are very kind words mate yeah. okay cheers everyone thanks so much for listening in and uh we'll see you soon <laughs>